Welcome to The Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode number 106, Chatterview with Dr. Charles Howe of Youngstown State University, Part 2. Okay, so picking up where we were, I had one question I was kind of interested in. You said you pulled your kids out of public school, and that was when you had pretty much just transformed to theism, not to Christianity yet. And then you said, I was conservative. So that's a bit of a, that's a bit surprising, given you came out of a Marxist milieu. So how did that happen? Or was it because of the Marxist milieu? Well, it it was probably because of the Marxist milieu. I mean, in my 20s, I had uh, believed that we really needed a uh, working class revolution to seize power and smash capitalism and that nobody should have more than he needs and everybody should have everything they need. And and the way to make that happen was to seize it with military power. And um, obviously, that would be a bloodbath. But we would lead the bloodbath. That's okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that was my uh, thought in my 20s. And I gradually, as I uh, as I started work, I began to realize that was not a very uh, promising direction to take. And, and uh, I, you know, as I got more experience in life, I saw that a lot of liberal policies were aimed toward a similar end, uh, basically redistribution and increasing control over the family. Right. When my children were in school, I was, was pretty pleased with their education up until about grade four. And after grade four, I started to see that the teachers had, in some cases, reached the limits of their knowledge, and they had also reached the limits of their ability to control the class. So they essentially had a system where students were controlling one another, and that meant that any child that was trying to be more advanced was held back. Mm -hmm. And so I I had a lot of arguments with the schools, and the upshot of it was that uh, finally I said to one of the principals, you know, I said, "I, I should just... I don't know what I'm going to do here. I should just pull my kid out and educate him at home. And he said, you know, I think that would be an excellent idea. So I picked up my stack of complaints, walked out the door and said to my son, how would you like to be educated at home? And he said, I think I could live with that. So (laughs) then I did, uh, you know, a fair amount of philosophical work on homeschooling. And that that would have been in my early 50s that I, I took them out of school. So in my 50s and early 60s, I did a fair amount of philosophical work on homeschooling, which did not endear me to the progressives in the profession, which is just about everybody. So <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you have the homeschoolers who are like this and everybody else who is beyond the screen. So, yeah. And even, uh, I remember I got a job as a chair of a department, which included educational leadership. And somebody wrote to the dean and said, you know, you got a homeschooler leading this department. That's a uh, I never thought it would come to pass. I never thought that uh, you would sink so low as to do that. <laughs> so, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, my wife has homeschooled all seven of her kids. And uh, the the last is 16 now. Oh, he's going to be 18. Wow. Okay, so he, we just completed his 11th year of homeschooling. So we just did our last homeschool evaluation last week. Or this week, last week. Yeah, it was the end of last week. And so she's, for the first time in her life since 1995, that's right, she's free. <laughs> so, yeah, this has been... Oh, that is a liberating experience. <laughs> yeah, and I think she feels it very strongly. And I'm I'm sort of delighted to see her joy at, at the completion of the process. And uh, she did an amazing job. All of the kids are quite amazing. I, I have a deep respect for homeschooling. I wish I had been homeschooled, but I went up all, all the way through in, in public school. 
So, yeah. Well, you know, when you were you were coming up, when I was coming up, uh, I'm a little older than you, but not that much older. Uh, I don't think uh, home, homeschooling was really really not not an option. You know, by the time uh, I started it, and certainly by the time Jenny started it, uh, I, I don't know how old her oldest is now. How, how old is her oldest? Thirty three. Yep, that's right. She just turned thirty three. Yeah, year. so that's about that's a. That's about my my eldest is thirty three as well. We had an infrastructure to support us. So what I did was I went on the on the web and I, I checked out New York State homeschooling laws and there were a whole bunch of parent organizations there that kind of explained it and broke down the whole thing. And I, I thought, you know, hey, this is not rocket science. I can mm-hmm. teach them fourth grade math mm-hmm. and I can actually get it right because I do understand fourth grade math and <laughs> I like certain people I would not name. So uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I pulled them out and homeschooled them and and uh, I did uh, a fair amount of scholarship. And Brian Ray, I made contact with Brian Ray pretty early. He's a Christian homeschooler, and I don't know if your wife knows of him, but um, she's shaking her head no. Uh, he is uh, runs the National Home Education Research Institute, and okay. he puts out a journal called Homeschool Researcher. So my first, uh, I believe it was my first published article was in Homeschool Researcher, and I had to go, I had to write to him and say, please hold this back until I start my first tenure track job, because I'm going to need this for my, uh, uh, for my, for my tenure. And he was gracious enough to do that. So I've been, I'm still a reviewer for homeschool researcher. And I I have a lot of respect for people who do research in that area. You know, it's hard to uh, do an empirical evaluation of of homeschooling. I mean, you really, especially comparative compared to public schools, because public schools are really set up to standardize Everything. So it's always apples to apples in public schools. But with homeschooling, it's oranges to kumquats to ugly fruit to everything (laughs) under the sun. And nothing compares to anything else. And uh, the children are unique. I guess they're made unique, aren't they? They're given to us as unique. Exactly right. Yeah, it's probably the way it needs education needs to be. Yeah, if I've if there's anything I've learned in the past, I don't know, uh, 10 years it's that God designed the family in such a way that parents <laughs> parents are properly hooked with their children. And that's the whole biological DNA thing. If you're outside of that, because I have an adopted daughter, if you're outside of that, you've missed the boat in a lot of ways because you cannot understand a child that's not your own. Now, you know, you can in a human sense, you can make analogies, but Children are meant to be with their biological parents, and they're the ones who are best suited to do the job of raising them. And that's something our culture better learn, or we're in deep trouble. Well, the uh, uh, the education professionals have the idea that uh, a, a certain certain segment of them, anyway, have the idea that these the child belongs to the state. Oh, <laughs> and you may be familiar with the uh, philosophy. Of, I don't know if you're f- familiar with Amy Gutman, but her uh, I believe she's president of Princeton now, but she's an educational philosopher, and her her thesis is who should be responsible for the reproduction of democratic citizenry. Well. You've kind of answered your own question there, democratic citizenry, and therefore children should be educated in public schools. Mm-hmm. But if you believe that uh, God has given parents responsibility for the education of their children and for the well-being of their children, then you know that you cannot subject children to something that's going to harm them. And if they are being harmed in public schools, not only do you have the right to and they are. remove them, but you have an obligation to remove them. I agree. Parents who tell me, you know, my kid has been bullied for the past two years. I'm looking at, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to hide my face, my facial expression from the horror I feel 
that you're telling me this and you haven't put a stop to it by removing the child. And I know that some parents feel uneasy about their ability to do this, but you, you don't have to have a doctorate in education in order to homeschool your child. Right. Uh, there are so many resources out there that uh, you can take advantage of. So I, I get it that parents are intimidated by the state bureaucracy and all of that, but uh, really you don't have to consult the state bureaucracy to know if your child is miserable. Yeah. And you don't have the right to make that child miserable. They're not going to learn. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually really fascinated to, and hopefully we can do some more of this at some point, because you're still in the normal school tradition, right? You're the teacher teaching teachers. I and, am. And I mean, I taught at East Stroudsburg University, which is also a normal school. And I was horrified by what it is they're teaching, because it seemed to me as though they weren't teaching content at all. It's like, you didn't need to know anything. You just needed to know that the way in which you're supposed to teach. So it's all about process and there was nothing about content. And so obviously you're not there, you're somewhere else. And I'm, I'm trying to wrap my mind around how you are still in the educational system, functionally working <laughs> and haven't been like kicked out or run out on a rail or is there a section of the academic community I'm missing? Well, you know, I think that God has been very good to me. Uh, I, uh, I've been protected. And when I got tenure, I wrote a letter to my colleagues. In the letter, I sort of revealed some of my perspectives. They, they were pretty shocked. <laughs> Shortly after that, I was elected chair of the department. Okay. So, you know, you still need somebody who's going to take out the laundry, even right. if he's a capitalist warmongering <laughs> pig defending inequality. Yes. And I found that th this may be a case of um, where you say, uh, when you want to find out what somebody believes, don't don't listen to what they say, but watch what yes, they do. Exactly. So the chair of the department in which I got my doctorate was a fairly aggressive progressive and was up on all the latest trends. And she sent her daughter to public schools, of course. Right. And they enrolled. There were special classes in those public schools for children who, who were uh, Native American, and they spoke the Native American language. I forget what it is in New York. Uh, but um, at any rate, there, there was a, a reservation near near where they lived. So that, And her daughter was the only white child and enrolled in those classes. And she got a premium education. She basically got one-on-one -on -one teaching right. for the entire time she was in school. You know, you have kids. So, so the other one that was an egalitarian, uh, you know, bought his kid a cello when she was a, she's going to be a, a world-class cellist now. And so do you really think they believe in equality in education? Come on, <laughs> give me a break. You're right. You're right. So, yeah. Uh, uh, it, uh, you, you look at what people do. And I think from, from a practical perspective, uh, people are people are fairly uh, fairly pragmatic and they realize what works and what doesn't work in the education yeah. of kids and they want what's best for kids. And so I, I can buy into that. I don't think school is necessarily the best setting for them, but a lot of children flourish in school and a lot of we put out a lot of good teachers, uh, teachers with a good heart, which I think is very important. And we've we put out some uh, highly educated teachers, teachers who are really uh, academically uh, highly skilled. Now it's a range. You got to understand that part. Right. Right. It's a range, and it uh, you know you got some up here, and then you got some down here. Right. And unfortunately, the market determines the distribution, right? So the city schools are so chaotic; they have a, a transient population, so they're always moving people around. And as a result, teachers don't necessarily know whether they have a job from year to year. And so the teachers who are, have the most upward mobility, the most ca capable teachers have a path out. So 
there are two kinds of teachers left that stay in the public schools, those that have a passion for urban kids, which I did. And, and urban kids have a lot to give back to you in terms of uh, their their love and their their need for you and their appreciation, the family's appreciation for you. So that's a, that's a motivator. But the other kind is the, the people who couldn't make it anyplace else. Yeah. So you've got a kind of bimodal distribution of talent in, the, in urban schools and you know, schools vary widely in the, the abilities of the teachers who went to them. You know, back in the day before they started making women lawyers <laughs> and doctors, which is a really great thing for, I, I have to add, because I've had some sure. great women lawyers who have just sued the heck out of some really <laughs> awful people. And I, I really appreciate it. <laughs> exactly. But before they could do that, they were teachers. And by God, you had people with first-class legal minds, potentially first-class legal minds, teaching your first graders, mm -hmm. you got a damn good education. The <laughs> yeah. other thing that they had was they had nuns. And that's why the Catholic schools were so darn good, because nuns yeah. were highly educated. They had excellent education. Yeah. I began my teaching career teaching with nuns. And my first principal, Sister Anne, became my lifelong model for leadership because uh, she was a schemer. She was crafty. She was a person of character. She was a person of God. And she was a loving person. And she trained yeah. me. She taught me everything I knew. Which I, was I, love, I love your combination of traits there, because all <laughs> of those things do and can and oftentimes should come together in a person of God. And uh, yeah, that's that's neat. It's a neat characterization. <laughs> well, you remember in, what was it, Chronicles, where the left-handed man who slew the uh, oppressive king, when God had uh, mercy on the, and he sent, sent a left-handed man, and he okay. went up to the visit the king with the yeah, sword vaguely, concealed underneath. And he Jenny's my Old Testament rest resource. <laughs> yeah, and he, he slew him and he slit his throat. And so my wife sometimes says to me, you know, I don't know if it's that godly for you to be quite as deceptive as you are. And I said, I'll check Chronicles, and then, you'll, then you'll know. <laughs> uh, so interestingly, you sort of were hinting at the notion that may give me a thread to hold on for our culture. You seem to be indicating that there's sort of a pragmatic conservative underlying the veneer. I hesitate to call it a veneer as deeply as it's gone these days. The veneer of socialist, liberalism, progressivism that has dominated our discourse and our public life over the past, you know, 20, 30 years. I don't know how deep into the weeds you've gone into the Christian atheist, but that's one of my central concerns. And yeah, well, one of the reasons I founded the whole thing is I wanted to get Christians a little bit more knowledgeable about why we are where we are as a culture, right? What direction are we headed? I think yeah, that's very why? true. So I, I would hope that uh, the memoir of a 60s radical who became a uh, uh, fairly conservative guy and, yeah. a, uh, and a Christian and gave up all of the doctrines of his youth ought to encourage listeners that, uh, let's say, the current reality is not an, our inevitable future. But I would just say, ju just, just from observation, that we have a, a solid population of pretty ambitious and pragmatic young people coming through. So I'll give you an example. My stepson is pre pretty uh, rabid liberal. Uh, he, well, let me say this. He believed strongly in egalitarianism, that we're all in this together. You shouldn't pull yourself out, your child out of the public schools. And then he got a graduate degree. They had a child. The child turned five. It was time to ch send the child to kindergarten. They got a house. 
in the city of Youngstown. He found out what some of the schools were like in the city of Youngstown. And lo and behold, we have school choice here. He could take a $6,000 voucher and send his kid to the Montessori school where all the academics and the doctors and lawyers kids go. And that was where this kid went because it was, he felt the pull. He felt his obligation to his child. Now you could say, you know, if you could reform the Youngstown City Schools, you'd make it better for everybody. Well, if you have a really good idea for that, you know, people have been trying to do it for 50 years, reform city schools, you know, maybe 50 years from now, you'll you'll make it happen if you are a real genius. But by yeah. then, your daughter will be having her own grandchildren, yeah. and you can send them to public schools. But right. in the meantime, you have an obligation not to let this happen to the kids. So, you know, I think he uh, he really understood that argument. So I have to say something else about the distribution of these political views, and that I think that disproportionately, the elite schools tend to graduate the most privileged and arrogant and morally ambitious people. They, they want to fix the world. Yeah. They think it's their duty to fix the world. And that was that was part of my problem. I went to a prep school that FDR graduated from. I went to the elementary school that JFK had uh, graduated from. And JFK was inaugurated on the when I, when I was close to my 12th birthday when I was in that school. And so I had ideas that, you know, the only thing worth doing was fixing the world, you know, saving Social Security, saving us from the Depression, saving us from whatever. Yeah. And so when I got out, that translated into this, this, this Marxist program. And a very dangerous ideology. But, you know, I went to, as a, as a young radical, I worked at Georgia State. I studied at Rhode Island College. I studied at Georgia State, studied at a junior college. None of those kids there were at all interested in what I was selling as a young radical. You know, <laughs> I think you could probably say the same thing for Antifa today. Yeah. You send Antifa here to Youngstown State and try to recruit from the kids walking across this squad, uh, they're not going to get many takers. They're probably going to get run off in a heartbeat. If you send them <laughs> on the college of, onto the campus of Princeton, maybe a different story. So yeah. I, I, I think that uh, sometimes these people get a little more airtime than they uh, than they fully deserve. Well, I'll tell you what. I have uh, like a billion things that I would love to talk about with you further, but I would like to hand over. I mean, do you have anything that you want to ask me or talk about that I haven't brought up? Well, uh, I know that uh, at some point we're going to talk about this memoir. So I wanted to ask something about, uh, I want to ask you something because the memoir is full of references to God's intervention in my life. Mm-hmm. I was a little uncertain how to how to manage this, rather, whether to show or tell. So showing it, I would show what happened and let people infer. But then I realized it's probably not enough because I didn't even realize it myself at the time. So I'm just going to tell right. them. But then I'm thinking, well, how credible is this? And I know you have talked in your in, in through the looking looking glass about or maybe it's elsewhere about how God had intervened in your life. Evolution of your thinking probably reflected God's agency and care right. and guidance and so forth and so on. So, uh, you know, from from a Christian perspective, obviously we all kind of know that God does intervene in our lives, and we have a pretty good idea how. But from an external perspective, you know, taking the atheist standpoint, how do we justify? these inferences or how do I, we, we, we couldn't give a knockdown drag out justification of these inferences, somebody who wouldn't believe in God, but we at least I think have some responsibility of explaining our epistemic foundation for, for these beliefs, because we don't believe everything is the intervention of God, but we have good reason to believe certain things are the intervention of God. So how do you, how do you process this in your own thinking about your own life? As I read through this preface, do you, do you have more written? 
I have the whole book written. Oh, it's all written. Okay. Um, As I read through the preface, the one point that kind of stuck out to me through the preface was, wow, a little heavy on the explication and a little light on the experience. I would have liked to have heard more of this, of the, the radical coming through in the preface, because I think if you're going to be reaching out to those who are on that side, they need to feel that you really felt it at the time. And so that was the one critique. I said that to Jenny as I read through it. I said, I love how you ended here, but I felt like while you were doing the first part, and this is, of course, from Jenny's perspective and my perspective, Jenny came late in life to Christianity. And so when we go Did to she? church, yeah, uh, well, you know, in her 20s, but and not not much before that. She was, you know, her father was an atheist, her mom didn't, uh, agnostic probably, I don't know, we don't, really, we don't really characterize them too much. But she didn't hear the gospel clearly until in her 20s. And she was already married and had her first child. And so when we go to church and others talk about they don't understand why they invited their neighbor over for dinner and they presented the gospel to them right away and they don't want to come back to dinner. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, yeah, I can kind of tell you why that and you know why. <laughs> and, and as 25 years as an atheist, I know why. Yeah. You know, having grown up in the church, we adopt the evangelical language without recognizing that we're coming from an entirely different paradigm than they are, and we're not speaking their language. And as soon as we go into our language, they're done. Right. Um, and so that would be the one issue I would say. I would love to say, as you said it, I would like to see a little bit more showing and a little less telling. <laughs> well, I'm providing a, a sketch of where the book is headed. Right. And I'm not giving... I'll send you the rest of the book, and then you'll see where uh, uh, how, how it works. But let me. Yeah, I'm let interested me, in the details too, for sure. Yeah, let me let me return to the the question about our our own epistemic justification for our beliefs that God has intervened at a particular time in our life. I, I had this conversation with my my wife as well. So I don't know if you've had the experience of God speaking to you. You mean like in voices? No, yeah, never. Yeah, okay. In fact, I said like on the I, I've never experienced anything, you know, like I would even call anything I've ever had a religious experience ever in my life. Okay. So when you, when one has that experience, then the question is, how do you, how do you know that's, that's not you talking to yourself or what, what makes it credible? What, what are the grounds for your belief? So my answer to that is, first of all, the content of what they say, it's got to line up with what I've read in the Bible that God has been thinking as he tells us at some length. And second, the, the voice has to kind of sound like Jesus in personal address, in tone, and so forth and so on, because it would be in the person of Jesus that God would speak to us. So, you know, so that would be a test that I would apply. That's really it's, fascinating. It's not a it's not a knockdown drag out proof, but it does sort through, you know, the problem of uh, hearing voices that are telling you to go jump off the bridge or something like that. <laughs> Just so. today, Jenny and I were reading about Samson's parents. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Samson's mother first and said, you're going to have a child. And then she told her husband about it. And he said, who, you know, I'd like to talk to this person. So he prayed for it. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to her again. And she said, oh, he's here. He's here. Why don't you come listen to him? And so 
the whole process worked its way out kind of like exactly what you're saying, which is kind of odd that that happened today. But, and that's one of those things that exactly like you're saying, how do we know God's speaking? Well, that's one of the ways because things tend to come together in rather odd coincidental moments. And does that guarantee God speaking? No. No. But it does suggest that maybe you should listen and pay attention and start to weigh what's going on. And so, yeah, I'm with you. It's kind of like a coherence test for truth. I mean, it's not a knockdown drag out, but uh, if it if it if it involves a contradiction, then you know it's not true. So, uh, so that 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 helps. You know, all all these things. I don't think there's any any uh, you know final epistemic justification to believing that God intervened in one way or rather than another. Uh, the other thing that my wife said is, so, well, uh, the passage of time will help to tell you. Right. Uh, and I think the reason for that is because you're. Uh, you see the consequences of whatever act it was that have come to believe that, that God initiated. And that's one of your reasons for believing it, because it had the consequence that it did. Another one is that an action initiated by a uh, believing Christian, I think, is uh, not always, but likely somebody who has set out to serve God and who has uh, events in their personal demeanor, a sincerity, belief, and a following the example of Christ and, and showing that the, the Spirit has been working in them. I, I think you can kind of give some credence to that person's action having been reflecting in some way the will of God. Although God does act through other people, non-Christians as well, Absolutely. Uh, but but that's certainly, certainly part of it. And uh, so there are a number of other... Anyway, I was thinking about this in, in, in relation to how do I make these acts of intervention credible for a, a non-Christian? And I was, I was thinking about the epistemic uh, justification for it. So let's see if there are any others down here. Maybe you could think of something too. I, I like the way this is developing because I think time is one of those relevant things that helps us determine whether, because if it goes wrong, we've screwed something up <laughs> because God yeah. doesn't screw it up. So I think that's really good. I have a friend that I interviewed for the podcast a little while ago, Paul Siongo Jong, who has Oh a yeah, I, I saw part of that. Yeah. How do you know, how do I know, or how do you know God speaks? Yes. Something like that. He has quite a few episodes in the first season that really radically address this, this exact question that I thought were quite good. So I will definitely take a look at that. So then one of my other criteria was, how do you know? What One way you know is that if the thing that happened was something that you prayed for. I now, that doesn't mean that God specifically decided that he was going to grant your prayer, but in some way, if we believe that he's responsible for the entire universe, I, I think it behooves us to say thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Even if he said, "Well, I didn't really mean to do that." But, yeah. <laughs> no, he's not going to say that. But but he 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 would have known the he foresees the consequences of every act that he he enacts, and and so uh, I think we can legitimately ascribe those actions which fulfill our prayers as his activity. The answers to prayer are what kinds of prayers are answered? How are how are they answered? How often are they answered is also an interesting question kind of relating to this. And as I said, after uh, I made the bargain with God, you know, if you get me out of this, I'll pray every day of my life. So I've had a, a lot of prayers. So I was thinking back on how many of them were answered. So I think every time I applied for a job as a dean, which was 29 times, I, I prayed. But I didn't pray that I would get it. I prayed if this is the right job for me, then I will get it. And so 28 no, it was one yes, but technically, <laughs> technically, they were all yeses because I didn't belong in that other place. And it turned out there was a very powerful reason for being in Youngstown. 
And that was that my eventually-to-be wife, who is now my partner in Christ, was located in Indiana, close enough for us to communicate yes. and meet. And yeah, I'd so, like to hear that story at greater length. Um, we're down to eight minutes left on on this episode, so it's going to cut out in about you know five six. Yeah, minutes. that's fine. So we can cut it short. We can do a few more things. If you have things pointed you'd like to ask, let's do them. Well, let me see. I, I do have a, a note card. Uh, I, I don't. I, I not on a particular time schedule here, so you, you may be. But let's see if I have that note card. Um. You're probably a little bit more vital than me. I'm getting tired, actually. <laughs> Are you? Okay. Yeah, getting... Well, let's come back to this. You know what I'll do? I'll send you the. Uh, I'll send you the rest of the manuscript. What, what, what formatting do you like? You like double space? You care? Oh no, I don't the... care. Yep, you can okay. send it to me. However, I'll read the whole thing to Jenny because we read everything together. Um, really? So, yeah. Oh yeah. So what you need to do? Maybe you're going to print out two copies, or maybe just one copy will suffice, and you're going to have a pen in your hand. Yep, that's what I do. Every every time you have a question, or it doesn't make sense, or more elaboration is needed, or it's too wordy, or it's too much telling and not enough showing you. I've been over this thing a few times, but you know, my, my wife has read it enough times that she's not willing to read it anymore. So, I mean, she'll, if I really twisted her arm, but I, I don't, I don't really feel entitled to do that because she's put in her time. So now I'll be in your hands and then we'll talk again. That sounds perfect. Well, this oh, has been this a lot has been of fun. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I've really, really enjoyed it. Well, you know, it really means a lot to have a brother in Christ who's been through some of the things. <laughs> it's nice to be understood and to uh, talk with somebody who's been through some of the same things. So, uh, and, and I am deeply encouraged that you are still in the educational realm and that there's some sort of Christian influence that's actually moving forward. That is like oh, so exciting for me to know. Yeah, so I we, really appreciate your contacting me. I appreciate your listening to the podcast, which, you know, that can get, I would think eventually in some cases it gets a little oppressive. No, you know what I do? I do it while I, ex while I exercise. Ah, good. And I was very interested in the, uh, your interview with Justin Brierley, mm -hmm. and which I heard on your podcast, but I don't know how to navigate his his YouTube. Uh, I, I know how to navigate yours, but not his. But okay. it's uh, so that was uh, that was that was very, that's how I do it. So it was yeah. enjoyable. So, all right, sir, I will send well, you that. And we'll set another time to talk. Sounds good. God bless, Charlie. Okay. God bless Take you. Care. Take care. Uh, bye, bye. Bye. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason. Respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.